1: Hello, and welcome to the Ask the Industry podcast, episode 109. I'm comedian Simon Kane, and for those of you new to the show, this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand-up, comedy, radio, and today, TV writing. Arthur Matthews is an Irish comedy writer and actor who often collaborates with his writing partner, Graham Linehan. He has contributed to a number of TV shows, including Harry Enfield and Chums and The Fast Show. The writing pair also created the hit sitcom Father Ted, and on his own, he wrote the TV show Hippies. We got into, if he prefers to write alone, or in a writer's room, or in a partnership, what it is like having your partner achieve a higher level of fame than yourself, and does stuff get easier to make once you've had one hit under your belt? And more! If you're new here, please do remember to hit the subscribe button. If you're old here, please do remember to give us an honest, ideally positive review in iTunes. Five stars would be the dream, but if not, a four-star rating with a review that reads like a five-star is just as good. Either way, please do consider joining the Facebook group. It's the best place to ask your questions to future guests before they come on. It's called RC Industry Podcast, and it's on Facebook, obviously. But for now, before I hit play, I just want to put two quick shout-outs in here. One to promoter and comedian Chris O'Neill for helping me put this together. He was instrumental in finding me a room to do this in Dublin while I was on tour out there. Uh, I, it's very hard for me when I'm touring to find in, sort of central locations to record, and he was instrumental in putting this together. Um, also, while we're on that note, we recorded it in the basement of Acosta Coffee outside Trinity College in uh, Dublin and uh, in the basement it's actually quite echoey in the record it didn't sound as echoey for me as it did in the edit so I have tried to remove as much as possible but unfortunately there is still some in there so I just wanted to sort of flag that up and let you all know that I am aware there is some echo Uh, I also want to thank Jack Gilchrist who helped me get him on and sort of organised all of the logistical fiddly bits at the other end. So thank you very much to both of you. Before I hit play on the podcast, I just want to say that I have signed up for the Edinburgh Festival and I am currently previewing a show around the country. I won't Go on about where and when that's going to be right now. But if you want to take a look in the show notes and have a look and see where I'm going to be previewing and where I'm going to be at the Edinburgh Festival, uh, that would be great. I really appreciate seeing some of your faces at the shows. It's always lovely to have the audience come down and say, "Hey, it's me. I'm the person who tweets you," or "Hi, I'm a regular listener and I love it." So if you could come down to a show, that'd be really appreciated, and or the Edinburgh Festival. And if you're not able to come down, if you could just pass on the message to a friend who's in the area, that would be massively, massively appreciated and I can't thank you enough for the support. But now, without any more delays, this is Arthur Matthews.
2: My first professional writing credit was,
1: it must have been Hot Press magazine, uh, where I
2: worked as a layout artist, not as a writer, but uh, I contributed amusing pieces to Hot Press. So I think I was probably paid for that. I did a thing called the Border Fascist, which was a joke, a uh, provincial, Irish provincial newspaper. Um, so I'm not sure if I was paid extra for that, or if it was part of my wage for being a layout artist, later art director. But that was pre-computer, so I was just sticking bits of paper down with kogel. Laborious task. (laughs) it was a laborious task, and sometimes I used to lay out like the type in like columns, but they wouldn't match up. So that didn't. I did that one. The first week I was there, the second week I did that, and uh, luckily the editor was okay about it. Yeah. So I I just did a few and a few cartoons and things, in hot press and funny articles are supposedly funny and then i went to london i met graham Lennon, and he was a music journalist in hot press and he decided to go to london and write for select magazine so he asked me to come over so i went over and the first job i did in london was actually i did um cartoons for the nme uh stuart McConey gave me the job actually um in 1991 that
1: would be how old yeah. were you then very old,
2: <laughs> I was over 30. Graham was young, he's nine years younger than I am, but I was, uh, I was over 30 really, but um, I'd been in hot press quite a while, so I decided to leave it and just, I thought I'd go to London for a few months and then just see what happened and then just probably come back to Ireland. Uh, if, you know, just see how it went. So I spent the first three months really just going to all the football grounds, one a week. My bu- was spending half the budget, but it was good in those days. You just pitch up at the ground and just pay in, unlike now where it's really hard to get into football matches. But yeah, that's what I did in London. So, and then we wrote a radio script for Lenny Henry. That was the first thing we did that we that we were paid for. I think.
1: Yeah. So, so what were you doing for the first thirty years? Like, what did you? Want what was to do I was doing it? for the first thirty years. <laughs> Not very much. <laughs> Did you, did you I can't want remember. A did you want to be a writer? or was it? No, good? not really. I was, a, I, was
2: I, I did, um, well, I didn't really. I mean, I drifted into it because I was, I did, um, I left school. What will I do? God. A few months to go until I leave school. What will I do? I don't know. I'm good at art. I'll apply to the art college. Oh, no, I've missed the deadline for that. So I applied to another art college, an inferior art college, which is now really good, actually. But at the time, it was a bit haphazard. So I did graphic design, and if my, if I had my time again, I'd probably do um, fine art. But I did graphic design, so did that for years. Did a year in the students' union. Um, did a year, a year, few years of doing courses like uh, a screen printing course, a wall mural painting course. <laughs> They're all just to complete. <laughs> You know, just to keep people off the dole, they'd put them on these kind of courses, and then I did illustrations for newspaper, which I'd never get paid for, and um, so I had to sue them to get money off them. Uh, so I eventually ended up in hot press when I was what twenty five, twenty six. Um, so that was my life journey.
1: Yeah, because I, I mean, in a, in a non-judgmental uh, or insulting way, it just it's just like you said, it's uh, later. I mean it's about right I think for most people to get their first like big break professionally in writing like sort of in their 30s but it just seems like you, you like you said you drifted into it yeah yeah absolutely yeah in a way that I think I think's not gonna, it wouldn't wind anyone up but it'd be like one of those things where like it, some people work really hard and don't get into it and it's sort of, it's sort of uh, quite a nice story of the sort of I don't know sn- uh, what's the word it's like sl- sliding into it in a very yeah. organic way
2: well, I did. You see, well, what happened was, well, I was I was in bands as well. I was in a few rock bands. I was in the mm. Joshua Trio, which was an uh, irreverent um, U2 tribute band involving donkeys and um, Jesus. Um so I did that with Paul Woodville, who was a friend of mine in Hot Press. We, we were both doing the art department layout thing. And then Graham pitched up in Hot Press and uh, that's how I met Graham. So really, the reason I got into writing script comedy is because of Graham. Because if
1: I hadn't met him, I just wouldn't be doing it at all. So was he sort of because because we was it like a moment where you both said we're going to sit down and write together and do stuff, or was it a case yeah. of you didn't? Well, really no, we
2: did. We did. A, we we did um, a kind of comedy sketch group thing with Paul me and Graham, but we only did that performed it about once or twice. And I was doing a few comedy things with Paul as well. But anyway, Graham decided to go to London. He said, do you want to come for a few months and we'll do a bit of writing? So so that's what happened. And we, when we were writing sketches, we sent them to Smith & Jones. So that was the break, really, Smith & Jones. We were living in Griff's flat. Because <laughs> he had loads of... As he got incre- increasingly rich, he got all these... He'd accumulate houses, so he had one house, and of all places, Kilburn. So he lived in his in his
1: house in Kilburn for a while. That's I've uh, forgotten the production company. Griff Talkback Yeah, runs Talkback. Yeah, so so it was sort of right place, right time, if you like. Absolutely, yeah. Because you were, yeah. Because to pitch a sketch now a writer would have to send it into an info app all sort of thing and hope that no one just deletes it, where well, you yeah. on his sofa. Yeah, we just <laughs> we
2: just sent it in to Smith and & Jones and Jim Pullen, uh, who's a script editor, he got back to us pretty quickly and said, oh, Mel and Griff kind of like this, so, and like that was complete meritocracy, because Ireland didn't work like that at all, you had to know, <laughs> not to get anywhere, you had to know someone, And uh, but Jim was very good to us, and then, before we knew, not too long later, we were in Smith & Jones, the boardroom in Talkback, in Percy Street, and Mel and Griff were there, and like we were just chatting away to them about sketches ideas, cause it was amazing, because, like, you know, I'd, uh, obviously, I was uh, a fan of Not the Nine O'clock News, and then, last Smith & Jones later, so, uh, it was a thrill, and Griff, you know, we knew Griff particularly well. Griff was always just great f- to us, you know, really generous. Um,
1: so that was the break, yeah. So, so you said in Ireland it's, it was more of a meritocracy? No, no, completely the oh, opposite. the opposite, <laughs> okay. <laughs> completely the opposite. So is it still that way now? Is there, is there more of a structure in Ireland? I've no idea. You don't do, it, like you just live here? You just. Work I just in live here, here. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> I just live here, I don't know what's going on. I don't know. I couldn't. I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know what this, what the story is.
1: Has it become more of a meritocracy than in London? Do you think? Well, I don't know. You don't. You don't 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 take part in it. You just.
2: I don't really take part in it. Are you just
1: established enough now that it's sort of like you can just pitch things and they'll listen? No, 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 not at all. No, (laughs) no, I pitch loads of things and none of them get
2: made. (laughs) Yeah. yeah well, yeah, I mean honestly I mean you know i I've had a certain i mean it's it's it can be frustrating I mean I think i you know i've I've been around a while and I've had you know some success, but it's still quite frustrating, so if you're starting off and you can't get a break at all, that must be really frustrating, you know um yeah, no very very little of what I pitch gets made. I mean, you know, small proportion of. it.
1: Well, yeah, but statistically, if everything you pitch got made, then the channel would be you. So <laughs> anyway, so, well, that so wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. No, <laughs> <for> but for <I'm laughs> the public, I'm not saying it's bad. But what I'm saying is, is that <laughs> I think even getting a percent, even like a one percent through, is is always. It's quite a lot than. Yeah, yeah,
2: it's yeah, it's of course. Yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not complaining, or am I? Maybe I am complaining. But it can be frustrating, is what I'm saying. Um, But, you know, mostly, even though a lot of the sitcoms I've pitched don't get made, you know, I usually get paid for writing a script at some stage. But it's a struggle, you know?
1: Yeah, like a spec script just so they can sort of get an idea of it, or a pilot type thing. Um, Well, you know,
2: I'd. I'd, What would I do? Let me think. Uh, I'd pitch an idea and then I'd go to a production company, really, probably. And then, what would I do? Sometimes I'd write it up and not get paid. Sometimes I'd write it up and get paid, get
1: commissioned. Um, do you write like a whole, half an hour script or like a 10 page thing for 10 minutes? Well, a I,
2: I, I recommend uh, writing scenes. Like if you're going to pitch something to someone, I'd write you know what's, what it's about, who the characters are, and a few scenes and a few potential storylines. That's really the best way to go, but some, you know, rather than write a fifty-page, you know, summary of what what it's about, just sample scenes are much better. I think you know, even to the, to
1: um, demonstrate what the characters are like. Well, is it? because it, there's now more channels. So on paper you'd imagine there would be more writing opportunities, not necessarily for the individual but for writers in general. Yeah. Do you find that that is the case or do you find that yeah, there's a lot of syndication f- channels for example? I mean syndication channels. So like, remember when Dave started it just took a load of stuff off the BBC yeah. and just showed it over and over again.
2: Yeah, um, yeah I suppose there are but it, it's, uh, it's, I don't know, there's a lot of... It's not it's not a brilliant time for comedy, I don't think. I mean, I, I was in London in the early nineties and that I think was just Vic and Bob were big then. Um, Armando and all that today today, or on the hour all that stuff was starting off. And then we were asked to write for the Fast Show. We did a bit of brass eye as well. So it was just a great time. So I, I always think that um it kind of started with Harry Enfield the, uh, um, and Vic and Bob and Armada and, and all those people. Kind of Peep Show, I thought, was the last really great show, I thought.
1: I really loved that.
2: Yeah, it's brilliant. And it just got better. I mean, it's, I always think it's probably the best written show ever. And part of that reason is because they're articulating people's thoughts in it. Mm. And like you can be much more articulate with people's thoughts than dialogue.
1: I thought they ended it at the right time as well. I I felt like they could have easily got another series. Yeah. But I well, think but, but but I mean, it still did like ten years or whatever. It yeah, was yeah, a yeah. long
2: time. And but it was just so good. I mean, I think. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's I, I regard regard as the best written sitcom ever probably. It's that good and casting of course is very important it, as well. A
1: great cast. What what. I'm do you mean when you say that comedy was better in the nineties? You've obviously—I mean, it was better in the nineties. No, but like, obviously, comedy is so subjective. I mean, like, <laughs> what was allowed or what was uh, tolerated? What What's sort of different then? Well, than now in well, well no,
2: well now I just think there's a lot of it is very low
1: key, and as in like easier jokes or quicker.
2: Just not as many jokes, low key. Not not you know not big laughs. Um, Low key is what I mean. I mean, I was kind of sacked from a program recently because it wasn't low key enough. <laughs> that wasn't the reason given, but um, I, I, you know, I'd, I'd written this with, with someone I knew, and uh, the producer suddenly said, "Yeah, I don't think it's working. I think we need to go down the and you mentioned a low key, no laughs show." So I was kind of sacked off for for trying to make it too funny. Well, that's what I say. Obviously, it's not what she said.
1: Yeah. But um,
2: and yeah, and just like lots of things, like the way things are filmed now with the shaky camera thing, kind of drives me nuts. Because I mean, there's a place for it if you know if you're doing an action sequence. But when two people are talking quietly and the camera's still jerking up and down like there's some comedian I actually really like and I was sent a link to his show But I just couldn't watch because all you could see is the picture frames and the window frames the door frames going in and out shot in the background So it just kind of drives me mad. I I got kind of obsessed with this filmmaker called director called Joanna Hogg And she did a few films. She's one called Archipelago, which I really liked and she does the op. I mean these these aren't comedies They are very very deeply serious films.
1: Is that the Scottish Highland, the archipelago, that bit?
2: Uh, Tom Hiddleston's in it. They all go to this island and it's a kind of yeah. family and they're all fighting. Okay. But she just does wide shots, locked off, camera doesn't move at all and very naturalistic and realistic. And I thought, well, wow, that'd be a great way to go with comedy to get away from the kind of jerky camera thing. But um,
1: that's just an idea I've had that will never see the light of day. <laughs> But do, you, but do you think that's because tastes have changed? Do you think that's because the the way that people... I mean, obviously, with on-demand players I and mean, with people watching it on their phone, like, almost their hand is acting as part of a shaky cam, adding to it on well, their I think
2: I think it may have been... I think suddenly sitcoms with audiences, the way... I mean, we did Father Ted, obviously, with an audience. And they suddenly fell out of favour with the critics and people saw them as very old-fashioned. And then The Office came along... Mm. Um, which I really like, maybe The Office is great, and Gervais is great. But I don't really like that mock documentary thing. And I think he, did he say that he felt a bit um, constricted by it at one stage? Once he'd done it, he thought it was a bit of a straight, maybe he didn't say that at all, maybe I'm completely making it up. <laughs> but in fact, I saw the latest, uh, the Ricky Gervais office, David Brandt on the Road. Of oh, the film? Yeah, yeah which yeah, I thought was, was very funny. Uh, you know, Brandt's a brilliant character. But really, and that was supposed to be mock documentary, but really it wasn't, because after about ten minutes, you just forgot it was a mock documentary. And it, mm. it, it didn't do... Like, it had a proper narrative and a story. And so, it you know, it wasn't really a mock documentary. What, what he did get out of it was the kind of David Brent to camera pieces where he just sound off about stuff. But he probably could have done that by just him talking to someone else. But it's just... I mean, The Office is terrific, but as a genre, the mock documentary thing, there was just too much of it, and I think it lets people off the hook as regards storylines and, you know, proper telling a story, you know, it's, it just, it was kind of a lazy thing. Also, of course, the other brilliant one was um, Spinal Tap, which was fabulous as well, but as a genre, it's I just began to drive me mad, especially all the shaky camera stuff, which is even in drama now. I was watching this ITV drama, and they'd even filmed things from, like, outside the house, like, through the window outside the house. So it looked like everything was from the point of view of some stalker who was in the bushes. <laughs> yeah. So a lot, a lot of shaky camera stuff is, is like, it's like... It is like that. It's like the point of view of a stalker who's hiding in the bushes. So...
1: And you're not a fan of that? You're not a fan of people... Hiding See in the bushes, bushes no. no i don't i don't, I don't get, get that on the record i don 't <laughs> think everything
2: should be filmed from the point of view of some uh, stalker in the bushes and but as I said that Joanna Hogg I got obsessed with those films, and I thought well wow, that'd be a great way to go I'd go completely the opposite hmm. but um yeah there's just but I just think there 's too much i mean there should be a variety of stuff you know, and there is now because you can watch so much stuff, you know and like dad 's Army. Aren't still all the time. It's great, and um, the office is great, and Peep Show is great, and all these kind of shows. But I just think there's too much low key, no laugh stuff now.
1: But it, I, mm. see, I, I tend to agree, and I don't really watch that many current sitcoms unless I literally just need something to fall asleep to. <laughs> I l- That's no, not I, what they're aiming for. No, 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 ask <laughs> Just in, a, I like having something on in the background <laughs> when I sleep. So Yeah and, and there are certain shows That are perfect for just Could you not have the radio on Rather than the television uh, I've got Netflix now So
2: <laughs> It's all so on you there. Netflix on Yeah I just leave it well, on
1: Why don't you just have the sound on I like the The colours moving in the, Like so I face away from it I like the colours moving Okay
2: Whatever gets you through the night Or, or not usually, Yeah <laughs>
1: If it's it's quite bad if it's on low enough volume I can sleep with it if it's on a high enough volume I get invested in it even if it's awful really yeah, yeah. I don't I don't have Netflix. I only I only got it recently because my dad wanted it and I found out that you could have two like logins on it like yeah. the same price so yeah. now we split the cost for that Well, week. my
2: sister has it on her phone so when I'm in her house yeah well, that's where I saw the David Brent latest um I, 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 uh, his his stand up thing yeah, yeah yeah which is great I mean like Gervais is amazing because because um, he wasn't a stand up, and then he thought, oh, I'll just do stand up, and, and he turned out to be re- really good stand up. Um, so I have a lot of time for him, you know, he's great.
1: Mm. I just, so when it comes to stuff like Netflix and watching stuff online and watching stuff in different ways, when you're pitching an idea, do you ever, so like, you know, like BBC Three moved online or like yeah. completely now, do you ever like think, Oh, this will work on this channel, so I'll go to these people. Or do you go to well, people that you, you no know, you'd go
2: to you go to um a production company really.
1: Right. Like I have a good relationship with Objective
2: who did Toast with Matt Berry.
1: Oh they're Darren Brown's one, aren't they? Oh they work with Darren Brown. Yeah,
2: Darren yeah, Brown. In yeah. fact yeah. that's how they kind of started off with Darren Brown, I think. Mm. Um, that kind of magician magicians. <laughs> Because the, the yeah. head of, who found, the, I can't remember who was the name of the guy who, who founded Objective. He was a magician, I think, and good mates with Darren Brown. Yeah,
1: they picked him up. I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, but anyway. he's going to bug me so now. Ben, that,
2: Yeah, I know, yeah, yeah look I'll it up online. It go it
1: up. I'll Google it. What advice is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> tell you what you can do, actually. Try I'll and look, look it up online. I'll tell you what, you talk, I'll Google, <laughs> and we'll just, that'll be the hour. <laughs>
2: Anyway, um, objective. Uh, Ben Farrell there has been very good to me. So I'd go to Ben with an idea. And he'd say... Mm. Well, you kind of know yourself, really, you know. That's something, you know. I mean, young people is, you know, young people's sex, bit of vulgarity. Uh, BBC Three. um, Miranda is BBC One. I mean, you know yourself like most people know.
1: Yeah, I I think... If you don't know the channels, A, they've got style guides up there and things they're looking for, so you should sort of do your research before you send it in. Yeah. But I'm wondering at your, and I kind of want to say level, but I feel like every time I say that, you're sort of looking at me as if to go, what you on? Like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's all the same, no matter what you've done sort of thing, which is interesting to me. But I'm, Well, no, no, I mean, I probably, could, you've no, got, I, I, I could, know, could probably, probably bend
2: like, someone's ear. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you um, want them to look, you don't want
1: to... <laughs> you, want
2: you know, no, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not, like... Um, I'm not saying uh, I don't have contacts in the industry. Oh, no. <laughs>
1: God, that sounded so much more sinister than I was expecting. No, it is. It was meant to be sinister. Okay, good. Then I'll edit me out saying that. I
2: have contacts in the
1: industry. Yeah. Um, You've done your time. I've done my time. Do, you, fi- do you find... Because it sounds really... And I mean this in a non... Insulting way, but uh, you're probably aware Graham's name. I feel is slightly more well-known than yours. Yeah commercially speaking. yeah, do you find if you pitch something because obviously you've written sitcoms on your own before like since your partnership? Yes, do you find pitching stuff with him? So for example the father musical that, that you're kind of working or the last I couldn't find much about it. Like there's so little it just every article says they're working on a thing Trump helped it, <laughs> which is what I found really amusing. Um, but that's, and i assume that's because that's the stage in production that you're in. But I'm assuming when you pitch with him, is it easier then? Or Well, yeah, Bob. Well, what the Father's End musical know. has
2: come about because um, Hattrick, who are the production company who did the TV show, have been on to us for years about doing a musical. So we didn't really pitch it to them. And I was kind of never that pushed about it, but Graham suddenly had some um, um, inspiration about it, which doesn't involve Which you know, has he said? He's probably said this about Trump getting into power inspired him.
1: So yeah, so so. Can I just say, it inspired him because if Trump can do that, yeah, Ted can become pope. It's exactly, not, it's not him watching. <laughs> Trump win an election going, well. look at how good the world is. <laughs> well, I don't think so. No. <laughs>
2: I don't believe that's the case. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that was that was, um, that was easy. That was an easy sell. Mm. I wasn't mm. even a sell because they came to us rather than me or Graham going to them.
1: What, what made you not, I mean, obviously, there was the title character kind of died off right at the very end of that and stuff, which kind of if you were gonna do a fourth series immediately would have made that tricky or or do, there would have been stuff to work around. But like what was it a case if you just didn't get a fourth at that point or you wanted no, to No we do didn't want things? we didn't
2: want to do any more anyway. Okay. We we kinda of thought um well we'd done twenty five at that point, so that was probably enough. Because of the nature of the show, it wasn't um you know, it wasn't a serious kind of real world with you know totally realistic characters. It was more lightweight than that. So we thought 25 is probably enough, you know?
1: Did you have any ideas for the show that couldn't get made or that the the channel or the production company said we just, we can't do that for budget reasons or taste reasons? Or for what? For, which for Father show? Ted? Ever? Yeah.
2: Um, no, not really. I mean, in those, I like when we did Father Ted, we got very few notes really. Um, We got some from very little from Seamus Castle. he was the kind of commissioning editor of Channel 4 and he commissioned, we'd done a sitcom with Alexi Sale called Paris which wasn't a success but Seamus still commissioned Father Ted but he had very little to say and Geoffrey Perkins was the producer um, and he'd give us notes but nowadays like I mean you get notes from the producer, you get notes from the production company, you get notes from the channel. And I was even talking to someone recently who said that they can now get notes from the people who, like, if you like the way um, Talkback is being bought by Fremantle, they end up all these companies end up being bought by other companies. So ultimately, Shell Oil owns everything. So now you get notes from Shell Oil as well. <laughs> so that was like four set, like that was, in the old days, in the old days, Seamus Casty had practically nothing to say about, he just let us, go. it was like a football manager being appointed, just let him get on with it. So Seamus had very, there was some, something about um, a Catholic theological point at one stage, he, he, he was a bit worried about, but otherwise he didn't get involved really nowadays you get um, you get just a pile of notes which was, which I don't remember 20 years ago I don't remember that happening. I mean I've done something recently and before it even went to the production company, before I went to the channel I had 10 sets of notes on it and like really long notes as well. Having said that, the person who gave me the notes was very good and it's funnier as a result. But a lot, a lot of the time I found as well that people who give you notes were almost never it was almost never about making the show funnier it was nearly always about plot and
1: storyline and that really um. We've got, okay, I've got like two questions there but I just want to quickly clarify something for anyone listening that doesn't quite know the structure yeah. of this, so you have an idea you, you let's say you just want to write it for this point you don't want to kind of take it to anyone, you just want to yeah. see where it goes so you write it you then send it into a production company? Well, yeah, or you could send it directly to... A channel? The channel, yeah, yeah. So if you'd send it to a production company, which you had in that case, they'll look over it. If they like it, they might send you notes. Or, the, or if they know you, they might bring well, you in uh, and go no, what it. They
2: do, what they do first, probably... Yeah, they'll probably come in and, and you'd, you'd meet them. And if they liked it enough, uh, and they'd say... Just write more of it, you know, and then at certain stage they might try and get Channel Four or the BBC or Sky or whoever to pay for a script commission. I think they ra- I think production companies now I think I'm right about this. They nearly always try and get the channel to pay rather than pay themselves.
1: Who would who would send it? Would you send it or would your agent send it on your behalf? Oh,
2: if you've got an agent, but like if you don't have an agent, just send it yourself.
1: No, I'm asking for you, for you. Oh, for me? For you, yeah. Um, uh,
2: no, I'd send it myself. If people I know, like Objective, or um, the Rough Cuts, for instance, I'm doing something with, I just send it to them, really. But, yeah, it's fine to do that, you know. My agent really deals with the financial matters mostly.
1: So the first step, so say you wrote something, sent it off, it got commissioned or they liked it, the first step, the first time your agent would know about that is when you say, oh, we've got this contract now.
2: Ah, oh, no, I mean, I'd send her, <laughs> I'd send her a copy. Okay. I, I'd tell her what was happening. You know, you'd CC her in sort of thing. It wasn't like I pitched up at the Oscars collecting the best <laughs> script. <and> i <I'm> <laughs> So I haven't replied. She, she never knew about it. No, I mean, you know, she's very good. She rings me up a
1: lot and keeps me uh, up to date. Well, I'm, I'm asking because there's a lot of misconceptions around agents and what they do and what they don't do, and a lot of the time when I talk to people, they go, "Well, my agent does this, this, and this." Yeah,
2: well, I think it's different. Maybe if you're a performer, it's different. Because I remember we had, we were with the Talkback Agency, and we were with someone called Melanie Copeland, and Melanie, I think more or less left to become Graham Norton's manager. So she's hmm. she's not just his agent. Or she was, That was a while ago. I'm not sure if that's still the case, but she was very much. Looking after Graham in every kind of way, really, you know. But it's, so it's probably different from performers. Um, but mostly in my case, um, I would say it's dealing with the financial kind of aspect. Not not exclusively that. But anyway, what I'm trying to say is that there's no need to go through an agent to get your script sent somewhere.
1: Mm. Is basically what I'm trying to say. So just going back to the point you said before then, where you said the p- notes that came back were mainly not to make it funnier but to improve plot or to Well, make- mostly,
2: yeah. Yeah. I mean not all the time. As I said, I've just done I've done this thing for Roughcut and the my script error there was very good and as a result, um even though there was a pile of notes, it has improved it, you know. But in the past sometimes I you know I just got notes which really didn't improve things much or moved it sideways or or you know didn't really do much and a lot of it w- but and I, as as I say they're mostly about plot and rarely about how to make things funnier
1: is plot secondary importance for you then when you're for me like it is
2: yeah, but it's still important i mean I think casting is seriously important i mean i i i've uh Matt Berry asked me to do his toast show. And Matt is just so brilliant and so funny that it doesn't really matter. You can give him anything and he'd make it funny. I've just listened to his radio show on Radio 4. Have you heard that, where he Uh cuts Uh up? Uh That's brilliant. He just uses old, actual interviews with um, people like Simon Callow, Kenneth Williams, and uses the original, their part of old interviews and cuts them up and interjects his old questions his own questions and puts a bit of music in it and it's just hugely inventive and very funny but matt is just one of those people who he doesn't you know it's the way he says things and he just has that naturally funny thing so you don't have to do much in a way really
1: okay no i i just wondered because as as someone who is Writing stuff at the moment. Yeah, for me, I find when I come up with the plot for an idea for say an episode, that helps move parameters to make the jokes work within the sort of situation, well, if you like. So that's that's why I was interested in you saying that pushing the situation isn't necessarily the right move. Well,
2: I, I would. I mean, it is important, right? And um, to tell a story, you have to tell a story. But like with Father Ted, a lot of the time we just think of scenes, and we, we think of the scenes first or scenarios and then shoved them into a plot, rather than the other way around. That was... I can think of lots of things, or bits where we did that. Um, Actually, you know, that was the that was the—that the thing, wouldn't it be funny if Ted... Like, there was a bit where he was... He had a car that he'd won in a, a raffle, and he he dents it slightly, and he thinks, oh, I'll try and fix that. So he just taps it a bit, and then you cut layer, and he's wrecked the whole car, because he, he's just... You know, hammered it to pieces. So that was an idea we just put into a into a plot, rather than coming up with the the plot first. But having said that, you do have to tell some kind of story, and you know, usually it's nice. I mean, it's satisfying if you have a kind of main plot and subplot. But I, I still think um, I think casting is hugely important. Um, if you can get someone like Matt Berry or, you know, Tim Key, I like it. Whenever I write things, I nearly always find myself thinking, Tim Key would be very good in this. Um, Do you get my like, saying casting? Like, Yeah. Okay. Absolutely, yeah. We, even, when, even on Father Ted, when we weren't that experienced, I knew Dermot, so Dermot got in. I knew Frank. I didn't know him personally, but I knew his work from Irish television. Um... Ardle I knew personally and the only one we didn't know was Pauline McLean, who played Mrs. Doyle, who came in through the casting route and that she was auditioned for it. But the other three we knew. It was kind of different because we were Irish and they were in Ireland so Channel Four or to- Hattrick didn't wouldn't have known really. But yeah, they just said, Yeah, these are the these are the right people for it, so yeah. Oh no, yeah, I'd always want to be involved in casting because if someone's miscast and you know the whole thing's in big trouble
1: so when you're so because i uh who was the person i was talking to slipped my mind but they said never think about who you'd want to play the part because you'll only be disappointed if they won't do it
2: well, yeah, you will be disappointed if, if, you know... They also
1: said it's more work when you have to rewrite it for the person you ended up settling for. Well, yeah, <laughs> but, but at, at the same was, time, the, the, the
2: counter-argument to that is, like, it's easy to write for someone. If you have someone in mind, then it's just easier to write, I think. Uh,
1: would you yeah. ever... Would you ever... If, say, for example, you wrote a script and you wanted it to have an extra... Boost for someone to take notice of it. Would you ever get some people together and do a table read and maybe record it and send them a, a, a audio version of it or maybe even a video version of sort of a, a yeah scene? yeah sure yeah do you, do you do those? No, I I don't do those because
2: um because uh, I'd probably you know I'd, I'd suggest people like just Tim K I'd suggest the people that know who he is um but yeah if if I mean, if you're starting off, it's kind of unlikely you're going to get Steve Coogan to come down and read your script. But there's n- absolutely nothing wrong if you're a performer, writer, and you, you know people who you think could, could do your script to do a table read and just record it. I mean, I can't see how that would be harmful unless it just wasn't very good. <laughs> you know? yeah. Which, in case, if it, was, it wasn't very good then that would be incredibly harmful. Mm. But I did, I, did, um, we, I did a table read with something I, I wrote in about 2000, and the casting it was incredible. It was like Simon Pegg, um, Rebecca Front, uh, Catherine Tate, uh, Ben Miller, Alexander Armstrong, Kevin Nelden, I say Kevin Eldon, um, mm. uh Tracy Ann Overman, um amazing cast. And so we did a table read of that. But that, 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 got no, that went nowhere. So even with a cast like that, you
1: know... So what are saying his names don't matter. Well,
2: no, they do in a way. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> giving an example yeah. of, of my astonishing cast that I got together for a table read, and it didn't get made. <laughs> What's the moral there? I have no idea. Uh, TV's fickle? TV's fickle. I think they went for something... Instead, that was just cheaper to make, I think.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you if there was ever a... Because, uh, I mean, who I think it was Space, Simon Pegg's thing. was yeah. the original, let's see if we can make something on a proper budget. Yeah. Um, and then America did it a few years ago with Dr Horrible. Do you, did you see that? The sing-along blog?
2: No, I didn't see that.
1: It was, it was when there was a writer's strike, and they had, like, Neil Patrick Harris and Felicia Day, and just, like, really big names for there. Uh, who all got together and on like no money just made this like very low rent super villain versus like like super villain who falls in love with this person who like he, he can't have because he's trying to get into the evil league le- the evil league of evil yeah and it was just so silly and so beautifully done yeah but it was done on like no money because yeah. they were trying to prove a point where like you in the writer strike of going we can do stuff on low money yeah why not work around these premises rather than you know sort of do that and i suppose with channels always competing for attention especially with more of them there's there's two there's either you invest money into it because you think throwing money at something will make it better or you throw money at writing and talent and it just is better even though it's not going to cost you as much and i suppose What's your experience with, with kind of budgetary restraints just holding back no, ideas? None.
2: I, I've never been really aware of budgetary. Everyone telling me you can Anyone telling me you can't do that because it's going to cost too much. Very rarely, or if they do, you can. You can normally tweak it so it, it's it's the same joke but done in a slightly different way. Mm. Um, I never remember feeling frustrated about budget being a problem really, ever, and because people are very inventive and can find ways to do things. Um, and shows look so much better now than they used to, you know, because generally they're not studio sitcoms with video cameras as opposed to film cameras, mm. or film effect cameras, whatever they are now. I mean, Toast looked great because the director, Michael Cumming, was able to... Sh- it was shot on location, whereas... With studio-bound sitcoms, they're always kind of going to look pretty much the same. But it's not a studio. It's not a director's medium. Really, studio sitcoms. It's it's kind of a largely a technical kind of a job. But when you get them outside in the studio, of the studio, the director can. Um,
1: be more creative. Hmm. I I interviewed Michael Redman for this podcast. Oh, yeah. And uh, I remember talking to him about what he basically did, like, two gigs in Ireland. And then...
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part... Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST.
1: He'd be doing those two forever if he stayed here. So moved to London and started gigging there in order to kind of build uh, his skills up and stuff. And I wondered... Because when I spoke to him briefly about his role in Father's Head and and his and the impact that that had for Ireland, what impact, in, in your perspective, did it have for the Irish scene and for Irish comedy? Um, well, um,
2: I suppose it ra- raised the profile of Irish comedy, but then that was, uh, you know, that happened at the same time as Dylan Mara- Mor- Moran, as we call, him? and Ardell and people, Tommy Tiernan, kind of, and Sean Hughes was a bit of a trailblazer, I suppose. But I suppose, I mean, there are people, uh, friends of mine who are in Father Ted who, who are still doing stand-up based on their appearances in Father Ted. Like, So that's a big selling point for them. And you know, fair play to them. Um, so yeah, I suppose it put Irish comedy on the map That's a a cliché if ever there was one.
1: Yeah. Yes. So, uh, and going back to the point we were talking about before, we were saying uh, how channels have changed and there's more of them. Hmm. Obviously, since you started writing, social media has become a thing. Yeah. And that obviously means that when you put out some work or if you write a sketch, even if they don't know it was your specific sketch in a show, you can look out for immediate feedback on that from people rather than the TV channels and the commissioners. Mm. Do you do that? Do you, do you ignore it? it ha- how, has that impacted your writing a bit? Well, no, here, here I, one of the best ideas I ever had, which I'm really proud
2: of, it might be my favourite idea, it was to do... Um, Sex Pistols Bill Grundy interview from 1976, to do that exactly the same but with Amish people, they're all dressed as Amish people, and I was flogging, I was. I originally written this for a Big Train sketch show series we did and the third series was never made so it wasn't in that, so then I remember bringing it to, taking it to Harry and Paul for their show. Harry Anthony Paul Whitehouse, and Paul said, "Yeah, I like it, but Harry doesn't want to do it, so it was still <laughs> not being done." And then Kevin Eldon had he got sketch series, so I said, "Kevin, do you want to do this?" Um, and he said, "Yeah," and they did it, and it was brilliant. It was just it was just that Sex interview, but they're all dressed as Amish people. So Matt Berry was in it, and uh, Peter Serafinowicz was in it, Kevin obviously was in it playing Johnny Rotten, and then so. I was, and that was on YouTube and got lots of hits. But brilliantly, Simon Pegg told me that he... Or no, he told Kevin that Simon Pegg was bowling with Steve Jones, who's Sex Pistols guitarist in L.A. And Steve said, yeah, I really like that sketch. <laughs> <laughs> so that was...
1: Yeah, I love that.
2: That's one of my favourite ideas I've ever had to do that. Because it's not a writing thing at all, it's just an idea. You don't have to write anything. In mm-hmm. fact, I didn't have to write anything. I said, Kevin, look, here's the idea. So they just looked at the original and just copied it completely, except they were dressed differently. So, um, I'm not sure if that's relevant to your question, but it was one of those things that was up on YouTube and a lot of people saw. Um but you haven't seen it, have you? I haven't
1: seen it, no. <laughs> but I am going to look it up now. <laughs> Literally, just write in a note. I'm gonna, um, yeah. Anyway, Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols
2: <laughs> really likes it. Great.
1: <laughs> What's nice is about the reach on things like that because obviously Sky and stuff has a, sort of not a limited reach, but it is limited in the sense that because it's pay for subscription and same yeah. with Netflix. But whereas if you put something up on YouTube or if you make something like a podcast, it can just Go to well, Peter
2: Peter has always been pretty clever about that stuff, and he's he's made just sassy Trump at the moment. The sassy Trump, yeah, it. yeah, and also um, the partridge stuff was great. The mm. uh, the Foster stuff with Tim Key was brilliant, and like, of course, that was that was done with no budget, probably because all you have to do is stick them in a studio and do, you know. But also, I mean, it's it's helped that Partridge is now kind of the right age. I mean, I know they're doing uh, they have probably finished the, another BBC Alan Partridge series at the moment. But finally, he looks the right age as well because <laughs> they could never <laughs> they could never make him look anything other than a young boyish-looking Steve Coogan. Yeah. But now, so now he's finally the right age. But it, it's it's he's grown uh, into it. <laughs> he's grown into it, yeah. yeah. And the the recent stuff has been great and the stuff he's done on Sky, the specials have been great as well. They're kind of um in a way I suppose to make the sitcom, which is brilliant, look I suppose because of the studio audience, maybe it looks a little old fashioned now. I mean, you could say that for Father Ted as well, but he's really it's really blossomed like, you know, and very subtle. It's probably more subtle than it was in the, in the T V studio. Because Armando actually, Armando Nucci came along, when we were shooting Ted, he came along to some of the recordings because he wanted to fi- kind of find out how to do sitcoms. So I was very humbled that he'd come along, wow, Armando's asking us questions. But, um, but then they shot it in the studio where <laughs> you couldn't really see, like normally you have three walls. And the, the front ones open. But they had actually kind of four walls, so that the audience couldn't really see. Um, Why did they do that? Just so... Be just more authentic, I think. Or so it's easier, like for, them, easier for, for
1: them. Easier for them. So it made the audience the stalker that you hate. So it made them look <laughs> in yeah, the <laughs> house. Yeah, <with laughs> <kind of> looking <laughs> through the windows, yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we, we had a small role, acting roles and that. And... Um, it was very different from the way we we did it because they on the day um, the scripts were coming in um, on the day because we we'd always had them well prepared in advance but on the day they were coming in and I remember actors hanging around and I think they were quite long those shows and I had to edit them down a lot but it doesn't matter I mean it's, it's still brilliant it's one of the best shows ever you know but it was just a different way from the way we did it. Hmm. Um, but I mean, I, I, s- I loved his um Stalin film, films. Brilliant, just yeah, so good, yeah. just terrific. And I n- I know Ian Martin a bit who wrote on that. But it's one of those shows you think, God, I'd, I'd love to have done that. Okay. Also interesting in that um, it's very much an ensemble piece. In that it's not one or two leading actors. There are kind of five equally prominent characters in it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's terrific, terrific piece of work. Yeah. But he Armando's probably the most important person in comedy over the last 30, 35 years I imagine. Mm-hmm. I always think of him, and, you know, Chris Morris, all that crowd. Rebecca Front, all those actors and, and Marlborough and all those people. With On the hour and the day-to-day and, and Coogan and, and knowing me, knowing you. That was one strand, the other strand was Vic and Bob doing Big Night Out and all that. I mean, was hugely exciting. We went to the recording of one of the smell-ofs Reeves and Mortimer and it was just you really felt wow this is an exciting place to be at a very exciting time for comedy you know. Mm. It was really like you know it's like Haight-Ashbury in 1967 or Carnery Street in 1966. <laughs>
1: stroke 67 maybe (laughs) through to
2: early 68 but anyway it felt like an important
1: time i what's really nice about when you talk about just collaboration and working with people it's it's just really nice to hear like the 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 level to which it's it none of it feels so i've interviewed other writers and some of it feels a bit like well i was a head writer and there was a team sort of that kind of dynamic and all the way you talk about things I've never felt, or I haven't felt yet, anyway, <laughs> that you felt like there was someone above you or below you, or you, no. it just feels like there's a, a team there that you work with, if you like. And I was going to ask you, like, you've wor- you've written scripts on your own, uh, in particular, yeah. like Hippies, the, the sitcom, for example, where you wrote most of that yeah. solo. Yeah. How did you deal with writing alone, and how did you deal with not having, like, someone to bounce ideas off of?
2: Um. I don't. I don't mind not having anyone <laughs> to bounce ideas off. <laughs> okay. You know, you just you can just not have arguments with anyone. You can just you can just write it, and there it is, and it's it's less conflict. Um. But it's it's not. I'm not saying it, it's that means it's better, but it's just easier. You know. Mm. I just find it easier. Um. But as I say, that doesn't actually mean it's better. Uh, but um it swings and roundabouts I suppose but I don't I don't mind writing on my own at all. And the old days, like when I was writing with Graham, the sitcoms and Big Train and stuff. Not not in Big Train, but before that, like we were living together and sitting down at a computer, even a word processor, pre computer, in the early days and we just write together. But now, I don't, does anyone do that anymore? Actually sitting, I suppose some people do, but I, I've, I've been doing something, a script editor with um, David Earle and Joe Wilkinson, who are brilliant actually, very funny. And um, they, despite the fact they both live either in Brighton or very close to Brighton, <laughs> they don't just write like on Skype or something. They don't actually get together in the same place. Mm. Um, so that's, that's the modern world. Um, but I think even Richard Curtis and Ben Elton doing Black Adder would just write separately. And in those days, they'd post the scripts to each other. <laughs> but actually, talking about um, internet. Um, Sorry, what? Talking about the. Yeah, um, what we don't. What kind it? of. You know, people doing <laughs> solo stuff, without, oh, yeah. not on mainstream television channels. Matt Berry me, put me on to David Earle's co- um, combo character which is really really funny. Mm-hmm. He's just this brilliant character and uh, I don't know if you've seen it, if you haven't seen it it's combo and David Earl's just this kind of loser guy in Brighton who's you know the wrong side of 30, 40, nearly 40 and he's still kind of hanging out with the kids and going to all night Raves and stuff, but it's brilliantly funny and well realized character, you know. So that that's as good as anything I've seen on mainstream TV recently, and like podcasts, which have nothing to do with with BBC or anything. That I listened to um, Julie Davis's recent one with um, uh, Vicky Paperdine called Joan and Jericho, which is really really funny. Um, it's kind of Two agony aunts, but dealing with the most horrifically gross, grotesque, rude problems. Hi. Hi. Can you, can you the toilet? Yeah. Um, they're just closed downstairs.
1: Perfect. Thank you very much. Do you need the toilet before? No. We? Okay. <laughs> we've, we've got about ten minutes left, and they close the toilets before the end of the place.
2: Fair enough. I yeah. can hold out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's the. John Jarrick Jerick is really good. I, I like, I've always, I've, I was watching um, Nighty Night again recently and Julie is terrific because Toast was a bit like that. I, I hate this kind of twee vulgar kind of comedy which is like people saying poo and wee and all that stuff. I hate that. So if you're gonna do kind of that kind of stuff go way over the top like Toast w- was a bit over the top. Um, but it's all or nothing. The middle ground of wee and poo jokes is just Horrendous. <laughs> just awful. Whereas John and Jerick is pure filth, but in a very funny way. Um, that's my take. I just hate that Twee Vulgar stuff. I did I did um I was at one stage um working in Radio Four as a kind of they had a regular monthly meetings with about four or five people who would who would look at scripts coming in and comedy ideas for all the producers would uh, Present, and a lot of the scripts were that kind of twee vulgar stuff, which I just really hated, you know. Um, so it's all or nothing. If you're gonna go down the sex route, just make it really grotesque, or don't bother at all. That's good advice.
1: Well, you know, what's <laughs> go- you know what's gonna happen now, that. <laughs> <laughs> You gonna get loads of people tweeting you going, oh, "I've got this really great idea, <laughs> anal yes. fisting or something."
2: Yeah. Um, no, not not that. That's not. That's, that's, that's too far. That's there's something wrong <laughs> about that. I don't know why. <laughs> L- John and Jericho, listen to John and Jericho, and you'll get the right the right kind of way to go. I think it's you have to treat it in like they they as these kind of two very middle class, middle England home counties agony ants. They can talk about. It in a kind of, that kind
1: of homely kind of way, but what they're talking about is really outrageous. How do you discover podcasts and YouTube stuff, do you just go searching, like sort of just to kind of get some the ball rolling in your own head, or, or do you listen to recommendations, what's what's your process um, for discovering stuff?
2: Um, no, I don't get too many recommendations, Matt, Matt um, Barry told me about the David Earl thing, um, how did i i fa- i read about um jane and Jerica Jane and Jerica in the uh in the newspaper um yeah i don't know i mean i am not i don't know what's going on really
0: <laughs> <Well, glad to laughs> i have you. no idea what's <laughs> going on
2: i've absolutely no idea um I, although i have organized my youtube um videos have you done that yeah yeah, yeah. Well, I just have lots of kind of mostly music videos to be honest.
1: I've been doing that. I've been, I've been, I've had an account on YouTube for me to watch for about ten years, and I've had one for me to make stuff for about four. Yeah. And the one that I use for watching, I've always been quite pedantic about categorizing into playlists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, I, yeah, there's probably loads. I'm that quite
2: organised. I quite, I kind of like, that. but having said that, there isn't much comedy stuff. There's a lot of. Um, Saturday Night Live stuff, I mean, obviously with Trump and Alec Baldwin, that's, that's kind of a godsend, that's pretty funny. But there's a lot of um, Christopher Walken. Did you ever see the Christopher Walken one where he's a birthday party and all the other Christopher Walkens come? No. It's very funny, but we always, when Graham and me were in London in the early 90s, we used to watch a hell of a lot of Saturday Night Live. It was the kind of Dana, Dana Carvey. That's his name, mm. and um, Mike Myers' era, Phil Hartman. So we watched a hell of a lot of that, mm. and it still has its moments. Saturday Night Live, but uh, yeah,
1: but you know what else is going on? Do you, Do you think watching a lot of that has influenced the way you write? Because yeah, a lot yeah. of Saturday Night Live is very punchy and. Sort well, of I
2: don't funny. know. I mean, you think what you like. You know, I, I was hugely influenced. I had this this um, someone gave me a book years ago, thirty years ago, more. By this uh, Canadian illustrator and humorist called Bruce McCall. He used to do a lot of stuff for National um, Lampoon and stuff, The New Yorker. And it's, it was a huge influence on me. It's one of the funniest books I've ever read. It was a collection of all his pieces in National Lampoon and, and all those kind of magazines. Um, and it's just really, really, they're kind of f- f- bogus or fake catalogues for the Titanic. And he had an obsession with 1950s American cars. He was a, he's a Canadian American guy, and that was hugely influential on me. And uh, um, it's bound to have an influence, you know, all that kind. Whatever you, you look at and absorb, if you like it, it's bound. It's bound to have an influence. I mean, it has to.
1: When you when you first started writing, looking back on it now, do you see any echoes of writers that you enjoyed in your early work?
2: Uh, yeah, I do. I tell you what, I think um, Father Ted was very like. I think it was very like um, Reggie Perrin, the rising father, Reginald Perrin. I think I looked. I I, I like that show a hell of a lot, and that that was lots of catchphrases in it and silly moments and kind of slightly surreal. So I think that was a big influence on the actual sitcom writing, you know, and stuff like the young ones would have been as well, I suppose. Um, Monty Python, you know, when well, people of my age, Monty Python is really—it's the Beatles of comedy, really. Uh, so that was that and then there was not the 9 o'clock News, and then there was the Young Ones, and then I think the biggest, uh, the biggest effect of all was Reeves and Mortimer, really, and that was like comedy being the new rock and roll with, with Vic on the cover of Enemy and that. And then, as I said, as I've said a lot, then Armando and Chris Morris and Kogan come along and all that stuff um, when was when was, was very th- exciting? all that stuff, the fast show, all that stuff when nineties
1: okay, I'm sorry. I was just going to ask when was the first time you wrote something and you felt like it was entirely your voice, like there was no influence from uh, like your heroes or from places that you'd seen it was it was even if it was something that never got made, when was the first time you wrote something and thought? That's me.
2: Well, um, I'd say I wrote I wrote a book called Well Remembered Days, which, I mean, there's no interference on books. There's no one to, and it doesn't go through any stages of casting or filming or <laughs> editing. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all you, like you know, there's no one else to blame <laughs> if it goes wrong. But that was that was um, I loved it. That was just this this made-up Irish character who'd lived through the 20th century and was all about Catholicism and nationalism and religion and, you know, the IRA and and just that world I remember growing up in of uh, 70s, 60s, 70s Ireland and the revolutionary generation in Ireland and it was just all that um, mixed up. Actually, here's the thing. This sounds like bragging, which it is. Um, John Peel did, uh, did a show called um, what's it called a good read no it's not a good read maybe it is a good read and he selected that as his favourite book of all time nice and I was that was humbled I was genuinely humbled and Matthew Paris was the other guest and he thought it was racist and, and <laughs> I mean that's less of a brag <laughs> and this, uh, this guy what's he think what's he think he's doing and Peel we knew Peel a bit because uh, he was he was in um, talkback. His a- his agent was a woman called Cat Ledger, and she was the agent for my book, Well Remembered Day. So we knew Peel a bit, and we used to go for a lunchroom and that. And uh, I mean, he was just a, such a huge iconic figure, you know. To hang out with him was pretty uh, extraordinary. But you know, terribly nice guy. Because he got in touch with us because out of the blue he said oh I've seen your show it's really good and he sent us a postcard
1: when, when he said show, did he mean yeah yeah, yeah.
2: and he, he just out of the blue he wrote oh, I really like your show and he sent a postcard <laughs> of uh, scenes of Crouch End there were four the postcard divided into four with f- scenes of Crouch End and there was one of this vegetarian cafe called Banners and Peel is actually in it he's actually sitting as one of the customers <laughs> just completely coincidentally so, he sent us that postcard. Um, yeah, I mean, it was brilliant, We met and um, we met Stephen Fry quite early, because Griff, we went to a play that Griff was in, and we met Stephen Fry, he was really nice to us, and people are very, very nice to us, and very um, very generous, you know, uh. Lexi Sale was very good to us, we, we wrote, we did this, um sitcom with him, then we wrote for a sketch show. It was just really interesting that people were so open, and, and uh, just, we'd come from nowhere, like, you know, and, and uh, people were very willing to meet us, and, and they were just really generous to us, you know, and Griff still is just, I love Griff, and he's still kindly invites me to his Christmas party every <laughs> year, so, um,
1: yeah, we were really lucky, really lucky. How, when you first started, like, when you first started getting paid for writing work, did you ever feel like an imposter? Did you ever feel like you... The, the, at some point, they were going to find you out and be like, "No, no, always, <laughs> you always, felt like you." you no, I
2: never, I never really. I thought this is fun, and no, I actually never felt like that at all. No, not at all. Um, no, I, I've always been, you know, quite confident about it, the right whether you know whether you like it or not or however it turns <laughs> out. You know, I, I, I can always sit down and write something and be quite confident about that. You know. Um. So, you know, whether it's good or not, or whether it ever gets made, is another question. But no, I've never, I've never, um, I've always been quite confident about that.
1: And how, how did you start to get to know what was good written down and what would be good acted out?
2: Well, um, we learned pretty early on that you have to keep dialogue pretty short. And if something on a page is like half a page of dialogue, it's gonna, when someone reads it out, it's gonna seem like it's an hour long. So we learn pretty quickly to keep that kind of stuff dialogue um, short, keep sketches short, shouldn't be more than a page, a page and a half. Even mm. if you feel, if if you can't stop yourself doing four pages, cut it down to two pages. Um, also, make things visual. Um. um rather than just dialogue-y kind of jokes, have lots of visual jokes in it, which, you know, which are brilliant, you know. I mean, but it's, but, like, I always think of the Likely Lads, whatever happened to the Likely Lads, when you see that programme, it's really just two people talking. There really isn't much action in it. I mean, it's, fair, it's good, like, it's obviously good, but it could just as well happen on the radio, really. Whereas we were always very much up for visual gags, um, Because they nearly always kind of work. They nearly always the audience nearly always likes them, you know. Mm. Whereas people talking to each other for sorry to, I just slagged off the like lads, which is one of the most successful sitcoms ever.
1: I I genuinely think you were slagging off this podcast. (laughs)
2: No, no, no. This is this is highly
1: entertaining. If you've made it through an hour of this, well, bloody done.
2: Yeah. So um, yeah. Anyway, keep things short and put lots of visual gags in. That's my tip. for success and happiness.
1: And probably don't be afraid to do more than one take. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: yeah, we had in, in... Yeah, in studio recording of Father, we had some actor in once who just couldn't get the line right at all, and he kept having to redo He, he just lost his nerve. It just He went, his nerve went, and he kept having to do it over and over again. Of course, you know, if you do it 50 times, one of them's probably going to be usable, and then when you see it in the show, you never know. It's fine. Actually people, live studio recordings, people love when you make mistakes anyway, you know. They just love it. So you can't really go wrong.
1: Mm. Well, everyone likes a bit of schadenfreude.
2: They do. Yeah.
1: Um, What I've got is, hang on, let me double check to make sure I've not missed out any key. Oh, there was, okay, yeah, there was um, one other thing I wanted to ask, which is about when you were writing. So. Father Ted, series one was over and you had series two on the way. What was it like trying to meet expectations for either the channel or the fans for you and Graham? Like, what was it like pressure wise?
2: No, no, I didn't feel any pressure at all. We just continued what we were doing. Um, you know, I've just never had any kind of fear doing that kind of stuff. You just, we just, there was no pressure. I didn't feel any pressure at all. We just did what we did. Plus, now we can imagine. Because we'd had a solid, tangible series, we knew who the actors were and what they were going to do and how they'd do things, so that was easier. Plus, we probably had lots of ideas left over from the first series anyway. Um, Plus, you know, we probably got enough time to write, but I don't think we were ever under much pressure. But people just let us get on with things, really. And... um, you know, it's fine. It was just easy. I, I, I never found it hard. I've written some of the, the new Ted musical, and it's just really easy to write those characters. You know, it's not hard. It's just not really hard at all. I never thought Father Ted was hard. It might have got hard if we'd done another few series of it. But it's just, I don't remember it being difficult at all. Even, I, th- I think there was one or two. this one night of the Living Dead, which I think where well, they're all zombies which we could never really probably um, finish it off properly or the second half probably wasn't great but people still kind of like that show uh, you know um, it had enough stuff in it for people to like you know
1: if you If you could go back and redo that those three series or if you could go back and change any element of how you pitched it what would you go back and do now based on your knowledge of
2: Well, I wouldn't do anything different because it worked out. Okay. <laughs> you know
1: <laughs> There's things I've done where I, I would have recast things,
2: not Father Ted. I mean certainly obviously obviously not in the major roles. There's one or two minor roles you think that's not quite right. Now, I I've I've suffered a bit from from things being I've written being miscast. But then again, yeah you can't blame you know, you have to take responsibility yourself for the writing, you know. But having said that, I, I I can think of a few things where things I've written have been badly miscast and as a result haven't haven't worked out, you know. That doesn't happen very often. And as I say, generally
1: I'm given a big say in the casting, you know. If if for example you got to a stage where they said, Well, we're doing it with this character we're doing it with this person regardless, or we don't do it at all would you ever then rewrite some of the script to fit the new person so it works for you?
2: Um, well, you could do that, yeah. Uh, would I do it? I probably would, but it's it's so unlikely that would happen, really. You know. Okay. Um, I have been, there was I can think of two occasions where people were, <laughs> excuse the term, forced upon me, um, and it wasn't a pre a pleasant experience, really. But that's rare, you know, that's pretty rare. And a lot of the time, I mean, if you write for someone like Matt Berry then it's, not, it's just not gonna go wrong. Um, there are people I I always, as I said, Tim Key, um, uh Simon Farnaby I like a lot, Harry Peacock. Uh, there's lots of people I kind of like. Uh, so it's, you can have them in mind. And I did the thing with Ingrid Oliver. It's very good. Um, yeah, and like I suppose, um, if you have people in mind, you can suggest them. You know, and a lot of the time, people will be open to that. You know.
1: Mm. I have the last quick-fire questions. Um, quick for me, you take as long as you want quick to. Quick for me, slow f- Quick for you, slow for me. Exactly. That's the way I deal with it. Um, okay. So, uh, what is the biggest mistake you've ever made and how did you overcome it?
2: <laughs> well, I, did, I worked with someone I shouldn't really have worked with and I didn't overcome it.
1: <laughs> was it like, a was it Graham? <laughs> no, it, wa- it, it, wa- it wasn't Graham, no. It was not Graham then. Fair enough. Um, what is the most common misconception people have about your job and what do you tell them to counteract it? A
2: misconception.
1: Um, oh God!
2: Wow, that's a quite a good question that I'm struggling to answer. How would you answer that question if you asked yourself that question?
1: What about being a struggling misconception? Do? <laughs> I don't think there's any misconceptions about well, the level Let me see. That oh, well, <laughs> I think a
2: misconception is people probably always think the actors were right. That's true. <laughs> Yeah. People always think, oh, Dermot Morgan's in, Dermot must have written that. Um, I, don't, I don't mind that at all. I don't know, do people have misconceptions about what writers do? Maybe they think we're all often in... They're, they're maybe, maybe they think we go to a big office somewhere and get like loads of bottled water brought to us and sandwiches every day of the week. But um, most of the time, I'm just at home writing.
1: The only misconception I've ever had about my writing work is people sort of think that it's constant laugh like I'm just I'm just <laughs> I'm just chucking <laughs> jokes out all the time and we're going, We've got too many in here, mate, let's cut <laughs> this down and it's not half the time it's like, I've got this idea and the other person's going, Yeah, I don't like that idea yeah. like, but it is a good and they go, Yeah, but not for today. Yeah. And we'll yeah, it, we'll sure, bank yeah. it and like in a few yeah. weeks we might come back. And so it's more like negotiating what we're gonna develop more than yeah. <laughs> anything <laughs> yeah. else. That's that's my main experience of yeah yeah um, yeah yeah absolutely yeah and that bugs me a bit because then because then you can see it in their eyes at a party like if you if you meet someone that's why they go to many of them now because yeah. everyone's sort of like disappointed by the fact you're not constantly the the chuckle factory yeah. they think you are oh god
2: <laughs> yeah yeah no well well that's a big pressure I mean imagine what it's like for um, Ricky Gervais or Steve Coogan or you know the performers to be uh,
1: do you like? Do you like kind of not being as well known as them?
2: Yeah, I'm. Yeah, uh, yeah, yes, I think so.
1: Yeah, it must be a lot of pressure. Would you have ever wanted to be as famous as, say, Graham is, or as famous as Graham is? He's quite famous. <laughs> do so you not think he's?
2: Well, he's he's picked up an amazing Twitter following. Um mm. Uh, I don't see myself as. In those terms, really. I know what you mean. I do know what you mean. I (laughs) I I never think about it. it. I never. No, it's. I never think about it, really. Um, No, I. I I don't really think about it. Um, I. I wouldn't like to be in the A. You know the Ricky Gervais. I mean, it's great in many ways, obviously, but I don't think I like being recognised all the time or knowing people would always be aware of who. Who you are, you know. Mm. I don't I don't think I'd like that very much.
1: What is the biggest problem in the T V slash writing industry and how would you go about solving it?
2: Oh, um wow. That's a good question. The biggest problem?
1: Um Other than shaky cams. Well yeah, okay, <laughs> I'll go for shaky cams. Oh no no you can't you've already <laughs> I've already, you're said already that. extensively sensitive. No, um, cams. thanks for
2: reminding me. Yeah, yeah. shaky
1: cams. No no it right, was the second <laughs>
2: Second big well um uh second biggest problem I think that you know, I said this already, I'm sorry to be boring about, it, but I wish there was a bit more kind of great um you know, funny God this sounds so simple, but just funny shows with big funny characters in it, without without having to be, you know, completely over the top. You know, just room for more. You know, Matt Berry should be just in every comedy program, I think, really, and that would be kind of good. Um, I just don't. I, are there, I'm not sure there are enough young writers coming through at the moment. Um,
1: How would you solve it?
2: I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's cyclical. I don't know what it is. I think it probably d- needs someone to come through who who is really doing great stuff on YouTube or something that everyone can like, and it's really funny and. Um, I'm just not aware that there's anyone really like that, you know? I mean, you probably have your ear closer to the ground than this kind of stuff. I mean, when I saw, like, you know, when, when Matt put me onto that combo character David Earle does, I thought, wow, that's great, that's so funny. But, um... Oh, also, I have to say, I've been writing with this, um... Um, They're called The Pin,
1: which are a comedy sketch sketch group, Yeah, Yeah, and they're great, I mean I love their show. They've got a great dynamic.
2: They've got a brilliant dynamic and it's kind of classic, you know, double act, and um, so they're really good, Um, and they're young. They're genuinely young, (laughs) you know, because when I think people are young, that's like they're still
1: 35. Do you think the industry, the TV industry is geared, because the, the live circuit is very much geared towards finding the newest person, which yeah. often means the youngest, and yeah. and every comedian will tell you they're better 20 years down the line, as mm. every writer is. Do you think the TV industry is geared then towards younger people behind the scenes as well as in front of the scenes? Well, I mean, it's fair enough
2: that it's it's aimed at young people. I mean, that's, you know, that's fair enough. Um. But um, I just don't see the great talented young people coming through. You know, I'm sure people disagree about that, but I'm not hugely aware of of anyone. All right.
1: Okay. Thank you very much. Last question. <laughs> um, what are the I was I normally say what's the biggest bit of advice you wish you had when you started, but I'm going to sort of change it slightly and say what would be Three writing tips you wish you could go back and tell yourself.
2: Rewriting tips. Maybe I've tended to go too wacky and too weird at certain points, um, and it's very hard for me. It was probably difficult for me to stop doing that because instinctively it's what I've done. I've, it's what I would do. Um, so there's something I would say to myself, maybe k- slightly keep it a bit more grounded. But then again, some of my favourite things I've done have been pretty over the top. Uh, but yeah, I do look at some things, I think that was a bit too much. That was, uh, that was too big, too, too crazy. So yeah, that's advice to myself in retrospect. Um, other tips, as I said earlier, if you're writing, Visual, make it visual, keep keep the dialogue short. Um, um, strong characters, but that's an obvious, That they're all kind of obvious things. But as visual as possible, I'd say. Awesome.
1: Thank you very much for coming up. Thank you. Cheers. That was Arthur. I loved hearing his take on the TV industry and where it's going, and how it's still hard to get things made. I think that's kind of weirdly frustrating to hear but also reassuring to hear because I feel like sometimes we all have this perception that once you've had one hit everyone's going to want to hear every idea you ever have and I suppose they might listen to you like you said he can email stuff over and they'll probably listen or give him notes but it doesn't mean that they're going to make it and it also doesn't mean that it's on trend or it'll fit and it was just good to hear that firsthand for me anyway and I found it really inspiring to hear how he has diversified his career and he's written for other shows and how he just has a confidence in his writing that I feel like a lot of people struggle with when they're putting something together, especially when they're writing on their own. So I can't thank him enough for sharing those experiences and for sharing his take on the industry itself. If you like this episode, you might also like the episode I did with Sam Bain, who is the co-writer of Peep Show. We talked a lot about the TV industry and getting stuff made and also having a cult following for a show by accident. Um, Also, you could take a look back at the episode with Doug Naylor, who wrote Red Dwarf, which we just just put out a couple of weeks ago, it was probably about a month ago, so that one's further up the feed if you can't bother to scroll back to Sam's episode, both of which I'm really proud of and I really enjoyed putting together, so I hope you enjoy them as well. If you're new here, please do remember to hit the subscribe button. If you're old here, please do remember to give us an honest, ideally positive review on iTunes. And either way, please do consider to give us a donation. You can do this from one pound on patreon.com at patreon.com forward slash Ask the Industry podcast. Was this worth ATP? it's like in dollars, so I was I said a pound, I meant a dollar. But is it worth ATP of your money? Do you think you can spare ATP twice a month to keep me making these? If you can, please do join as a Patreon. It really, really helps keep the project going. And if you want to just do a one-off donation, you can do that on PayPal at my website, which is SimonKane.co.uk. All donations, big or small, are heavily appreciated. Please do not feel like your donation isn't big enough or that it's not going to be whatever. whatever's going in your head like oh I'm only going to give a fiver everything helps and I do reply to everyone and say thank you to everyone who donates so please do continue to support the project in any way you can the Ask the Industry podcast is a fruit that got in Gravity's Way production for the internet all elements were created by me, comedian Simon Kane. thank you very much for listening thank you very much for subscribing and thank you very much for rating and donating if you do I'll see you all in about 14 days time b- oh, b- before you go, before you go, before you go Uh, I just want to quickly say uh, I'm going to be at the Edinburgh Festival, I'm drilling down the details on dates, times and all that sort of stuff, but just so you're aware, uh, I'm going to be at the Edinburgh Festival in 2019, I'm also going to be previewing the show from about April onwards around the country, and then I'm going to be on tour in September and October. Now. This is the most vague plug I've done for anything, but essentially I'm going to be updating my website with these details as soon as they are available. Please do keep an eye out for them. I'd really appreciate it, as that would really help. The one thing I can confirm is I am doing a one-off, potentially DVD record. Again, that is something I'm, I'm dealing with. I'm sorting it out of sex, drugs, and other things I never do at the Bloomsbury Theatre in London on the 21st of March, 2019. If you can come to that, please do. Uh, if you would like to get half off the tickets, tweet me. Tweet tweet me something like tweet tweet me tweet me something mysterious like my uh, my favorite macaroon is strawberry flavored. Right? Tweet tweet me that, and I would DM you the discount code so you can get money off your tickets to come and see that show live i'd really love to get some of your listeners in and to watch the show i'm really really excited about it but also really nervous about it as it's quite a big space even though it's uh, the studio space but um yeah i want to get the the thing recorded and out the door so if you can come please do if you can't come please tell a friend and hopefully they'll come
0: thanks for listening
1: bye